Company Watch Financial Analytics. Hello and welcome to the Company Watch Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Joe Kettner, CEO of Company Watch, and I'm joined by Nick Hood, Financial and Commercial Risk Analyst. Welcome, Nick. Good morning, Joe. We are recording today's episode in the morning of Friday, the 12th of February, and that's just a few hours after the Q4 2020 GDP figures were released. So we'll look at those in more detail and also pick up um, some figures from non-essential retail that were released this week. And quite an interesting question around notice of intention to appoint administrators that um, I was asked by a client this week. So let's go to GDP first. Now, this has had us both <laughs> scratching our heads a bit, hasn't it, Nick? Yes. Um, now, let's let's talk about the headlines and then we'll talk about why, why we are both um, confused.com at this <laughs> moment in time. Um, the GDP numbers for December are out. Uh, the overall economy rose by 1.2% in the month. Uh, it rose 1% in Q4. 2020. And they say, and you'll hear the caveat in my voice, they say that that means that the economy is 9.9% down in 2020, which is the second worst drop in history, the only greater one being the Great Frost of 1709. Well, we're thinking the statistics were probably even more confusing. Than I they think were today. the statistics may have um, been very, very interesting. The uh, the assembly of those, I tell you, the compilation the, of those. Now, now, okay. Last week, we were telling everybody that the Bank of England was saying that the fall was going to be eight percent for twenty twenty. So, what's happened? This is where we're finding it. Quite we're hard. finding it very confusing, and and there's a very particular reason why we're finding it confusing because. Um, also in the headlines, it says that the economy is down 6.3% from pre-pandemic levels, uh, which is an improvement from a little over 7% the month before. Now, I'm really struggling because their definition of pre-pandemic is the position in February. Mm-hmm. So how we get from 6.3% down between, between February and December to 9.9% down for the year as a whole is a puzzle, particularly if you, being the nerd that I am, follow follow my lead and look at the spreadsheet underlying the first chart in the ONS um, release this morning, which gives you the GDP index based on December 2018 back into history, mm. way back into history. So December, December 18 is the 100 point, isn't is it? The, is, the, the is the 100. Now, yeah. December 19, the index was at 101.5, and December 20, it's at 94.9. I don't see how that's 9.9%, but I'm sure somebody somewhere in the ONS will be able to explain it. So let's just you know put it out there that we don't understand, and it's probably our fault, but we don't. Understand. Exactly. I think I think it's definitely worth just because I suspect other people who are looking at this and and let's be fair, we only read this in an hour or so that we've had this morning to to look at it. Yeah. Um. But it is quite hard. Now, let's have a look at sectors. Last week again, we talked about the difference between the the kind of lack of comparability, if you like, between UK calculation of GDP and other countries. And what struck me in um. In this report, and and if you remember, we we talked about how um, the GDP in the UK 
they try to measure it in terms of output rather than input. So for things like um, public spending, healthcare and education in particular, rather than just looking at the amount of salaries paid, for example, they try to measure in the ONS some kind of measure output. Most other countries will just look at salaries in. Now, Q4 growth apparently was mainly driven by increases in the health and education industries. So health experienced an increase of 12.4% because of coronavirus test and trace and education increased by 5.6% because there was school attendance in Q4. So that's that's quite a few figures, doesn't it? That leads me to the um, somewhat ironic conclusion that the pandemic has had a very interesting impact on the UK economy, if you believe this. Um, And it has changed it from a consumer spending driven economy to one that is dependent on sticking swabs up people's noses and needles into their arms. So presumably January will be great because of the vaccination rollout. You've got to think, I mean, who knows? We'll we'll watch watch this space. And March, March will be wonderful because the schools go back. Exactly. So, uh, you know, forgive forgive us a degree of scepticism about uh, about all of this. Um, uh, again, so you know where the ONS thinks uh, the economy is. Services are six point nine percent down pre on pre pandemic, mm-hmm. i.e. February last year, and production is three point six percent down. Construction is three point five percent down. Again, the statistician uh, in me says. How can um, the three sectors of the economy be 69 3.6, 3.5% down, and the economy as a whole be 9.9% down? But hey, what do I know about these things? Um, so we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll leave that with a bit confused. Now, the other thing that we that came this morning, and I'm sure um, lots of people have heard, is an interview given by Andy Haldane, our friend, yes. chief economist at the Bank of England, who talks about the economy being a coiled spring. Now, last week again, MPC um, is, it was talking about this vast, I think, £125 billion of additional saving that they were assuming was going to just be ready to spend in the summer. Nick, you, you kind of wondered where well, people are going to spend. Well, I think you've got two, two problems with, with that assumption. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just running the flag up the flagpole again saying... I don't think I quite see it the way that the Bank of England does, because unless something changes and and crumblies like me start going out to to dine in local restaurants and swanky London restaurants um, four times a week, the the, the consumer-driven economy, spending-driven economy, is largely driven by, by younger adults. And they, of course, are the ones that, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. have been the ones who've that lost their jobs. Yeah. So um, it, it, I don't think that's where the saving is going on. It's it, it's in my generation who hasn't, I haven't had my three obligatory holidays uh, last year and it doesn't look like I'm going to get them this year. Well, this is a point as well, isn't it? So on the one hand, we've got um, the economist at the Bank of England saying that it, there's a cold spring and the spending will be unleashed in with we're assuming hospitality and travel because as you've made the point that's the main thing that people aren't being able to do at the moment and yet we've got the prime minister telling us that we shouldn't be thinking about booking any holidays and presumably if we can't even book a, a uk holiday that means that host- the restrictions will impact hospitality there'll be a, a capacity problem you know in terms of social distancing and and on all these other things so yeah. it does seem quite 
confusing. Yes, and you and you you know I keep coming back to the fact that um, hospitality only represents six percent of the economy. Mm. So it, it's going to have to go some to uh, to repair the nine point nine percent that the ONS says we've lost in twenty twenty, and the four percent that the Bank of England says we're going to lose in Q one twenty twenty one. But we'll see. We'll follow it. And we'll continue to report um, on uh, on on that, and, and you'll have to forgive us our scepticism. Indeed. And well, and if anybody can shed some light, then please, you know, let, let us, us know if anybody is clearer on this. But certainly yes, we one, are confused one, of, of Tunbridge Wells. Yeah, one uh, one last morning. thing on that. I was I was hugely amused that uh, the Today programme on Radio 4 this morning wheeled out a very sensible economist to talk about uh, the GDP numbers. And, and his main point was that his worry was that um, he'd seen a forecast that 900,000 UK businesses would fail in 20. Uh, 2021, mm-hmm. because they wouldn't survive the pandemic. Um, that was an F, uh, Federation of Small Businesses. Uh, oh, LS, and was it LSE as well? I think LSE oh, a couple else. of weeks ago oh, had a, a similar one. number that we weren't sure about. But even so... Anyway, his point was that that, that would mean another two and a half million unemployed, because yeah. that's how many 900,000 businesses employ. Um, and I went, um, I left the room giggling to get another cup of tea, um, just reminding myself uh, that at the uh, greatest rate of activity in the UK insolvency profession in history, um, they only dealt with about 24,000 uh, uh, business failures in a, in a year. So I think I think I worked out first thing this morning that it was going to take, if we had 900,000 failures, it'll take 39 years to get to uh, deal with them. I mean, you know, so it's, 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 it's just not possible. I mean, I suppose the point there is that it's not possible. We can't allow that to happen. There will be no, there'll be changes to happen, and you know, we're, we're being flippant. Yep. Clearly, this is you know a hugely um, devastating for jobs and, and livelihoods. But you know, that, that kind of rate, Nick, thing, some it, people have to change. The government will have, have to, to do something to um, to stop those businesses yes, um, uh, suffering. Um, Shall we go? I suppose it's actually quite a nice segue into this um, insolvency point that was raised by one of our clients earlier in the week about the notice of intention to appoint administrator. Yeah. yeah. Now, now the point here that he was raising was what happens to the new continuation of supply provisions under SEGA, the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, that was uh, enacted in the middle of last year? And what happens, can suppliers change their terms Mm. during the 10-day protection period that a notice of intention to appoint administrators Mm. provides? I mean, that that procedure stops enforcement action. But the question was, does that mean mean I I, I can't touch the supply contract in those 10 days? Mm -hmm. I took advice. uh, within the insolvency profession, and and got a oh that's an interesting point. Um, the answer is that suppliers probably can, but the warning was that um, if the if a subsequent administrator appointed was to take the matter to court, the court would probably take an extremely dim view of it. Yeah. So um, I segued from that question that Joe asked me from 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 your client, and thought. Yes, that's a really interesting point, because right now, suppliers are dealing with some very serious disruption because of Brexit. Yeah. I mean, in, you talked about that, didn't we, in terms of transport costs? Three times, well, I think, the shipping containers. Transport costs, um, uh, tariffs, um, 
uh, VAT, although I'm, you know, VAT, I'm not sure is a point here, but and indeed the ability to get the goods at all because they may be stuck somewhere yep. in the supply chain, and so I think the eventual takeaway about about a lot of toing and froing with with mates of mine in the insolvency profession and with Joe was that we concluded that the takeaway was that you need to look at if you're in um, the supply chain, um, you need to look very carefully at your contract of supply mm. and make sure it is sufficiently flexible to allow you to change prices and maybe delivery schedules if you get caught up in something like Brexit. Now, Brexit may well be a one-off. Uh, you know, these, these disruptions may be straightened out or they may not. But there will be other events like this that will happen. And it's an object lesson in making sure you've got some wiggle room in your contract so that, you know, you don't find that your costs are driven 15 percent, your profit margins 5 percent. And an administrator is saying, I'm really sorry, but you've got to continue to supply to me at a loss. Yeah, that's a very it's a very good point. And now is the time to be to be really looking at those um, those contracts yeah. and just I, I, and again, I, you know, I think even if even if you can't do anything about it, at least understand what the risk mm. might be and where you know where you might need to be making provision um, and so on and trying to um, perhaps look at, at changing changing supply contracts if, if possible. But it's interesting. the The other point, of course, is from this. So obviously, if you're um, if you're having to supply in, if that is your customer that you've got to continue to supply, on the other end of that, mm. if you're a, a customer of a distressed supplier, these provisions do help that 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 chain kind of move on. So actually, from the yeah. other end, on the um, on the supply um, supplier risk side, these are potentially good news for from that point of view. Yeah, and I suppose mentioning Brexit takes us to Brexit. Yeah, yeah. And there was a, a British Chamber of Commerce. Um, survey out um, probably yesterday, I think it was, um, that showed that 49% of UK exporters were reporting uh, that they were experiencing issues because of the disruption. And 51% of manufacturers were reporting problems in their supply chain. And, And the British Chamber of Commerce was moved quite rightly to point out that whatever is going on now could become much worse because in April, unless something changes, um, sanitary and phytosanitary inspections on food will click in. They're currently not in place because of a grace period. And in July, full customs control uh, controls on imports will, will click in. So uh, there was a slight hint of you ain't seen nothing yet. And there was a lovely, lovely comment somewhere in my social media um, world Earlier in the week about Brexit, that point that that suggested that we had moved effortlessly from frictionless trade to tradeless friction. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a beautifully phrased um, comment, but yes, when you think I, about I know, it, that is pretty, I, I, and it is, it is fascinating. I, I shared with 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 Joe, and I'm not sure who else may have seen it. The most um, gloriously in your face pre-negotiation letter. Because today, Michael Gove is in discussions um, on Zoom, apparently, um, with the Deputy EU Commissioner um, uh, about trying to sort out some of these issues. And uh, the Deputy Commissioner was moved to send him a letter the day before, uh, yesterday, 
um, which uh, is an absolute masterclass in gaining the moral high ground in a, in a set of negotiations and pointing out all the things that the British government promised to do in the in the uh, trade agreement but hasn't yet done. So I, so I would love no to be a fly to, on, no the, on the compromise. wall. I would love to be a fly on the wall on, on, on the wall of uh, those discussions. Mm, indeed. So, um, I suppose that we're getting towards the end of our, our time. It, it's worth, I think, just quickly touching on the fallout Debenhams Arcadia um, yes. the landlords I think in, in particular you now you said you you kind of really rather kindly started looking at the 58 page illegible scroll of documentation that's been um, submitted at, at company's house I think we'll look at the headlines that have been reported in terms of the potential losses for for landlords and that's quite a a, a big 140 million yes rent hit um and i think here the the quote here is about 562 stores i mean spanning 1.4 million square meters of retail floor space yes and you've got to wonder how that's going to be um how that's going to be filled with it's going to be a great time for repurposing consultants well, indeed, uh, and I think yeah. that's a good the Grimsey um, report is going to start coming. I've seen more and more mention of that over um, recent weeks. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a big thing on social media at the moment about Stockton on Tees, which was which was our on the, when we put together the latest Grimsey review, it was our sort of poster child for what to do with um, uh, with a distressed um, uh, city or town centre, I suppose you'd say. On that, it's it's it, it's worth looking at. I mean, we might put. We might put, put the link link to, link to the Grimsey review yeah. up somewhere. It was, it was nice. It was it was really um it's nicely done actually. It was there was there's some lovely case studies at the um at yeah. the back of the uh, the report. Yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll um yeah. include the link but, to that. But but going back to landlords, it's very um it's very interesting that um uh, the British Property Federation reported recently that the amount of unpaid rent, commercial rent, for uh 2020 is 4.2 billion. It's wow. 4.2 billion has not been paid to landlords. And that's, again, to put it in context, it's 20% of all the rent due for the year. I mean, this is, I just want to very quickly pick up on something. And you, you, this is just a thought that, that that came to me actually a little bit earlier when I was reading some of the um, Andy mm. Haldane um, comments. So I think he talks about 125 billion worth of consumer pent-up spending. And I think like 100 million of business um money that's that's kind of he thinks is an untapped resource for investment yep. now the thing that occurs to me is if that is 4.2 billion of unpaid rent presumably you know there are companies who haven't been paying rent and you know, who need to pay rent and you know and some of that 100 billion presumably is is owed to um to landlords oh, yes. so you know we've got a lot of of companies who have got cash presumably because they haven't faced enforcement action and therefore have decided yep. to hold on to the cash rather than to um to spend it so i think you know it's a kind of miss it is it, maybe misleading to draw a direct link between the amount of money in in bank accounts yep. and assume that that is free to be spent on growth rather than paying back yes and, and, and it, it's it's worth remembering that um by the end of november no by the end of january We've got the latest figures. By the end of January, the uh, various government-supported loan schemes had advanced £71.1 billion to UK companies, and the recipients of those loans represent 
36% of all UK companies. It's 36% of the active number of companies at Companies House, One point, almost 1.6 million. Wow. So there ain't half an awful lot of debt overhang out there, which we'll be watching with great interest as yeah. it eventually unwinds. Indeed. And actually, that's um, that's quite quite kind of draws us into our conclusion quite nicely, which is, you know, as we as as Nick and I were talking a little bit before recording and trying to to sort out the confusion of the GDP numbers. I think it's so interesting. You know, we find this, this bigger picture and trying to to pin down that kind of elusive big picture story is fascinating. But I think for most of our listeners, that's context. And actually, the most important thing is the individual risks and the individual companies that you're um, exposed to and trying to, to really kind of get to grips with, with individual companies. It's, it is interesting to see the bigger picture, but there's so much uncertainty around where things are going and what these numbers might mean. Um, but I think kind of trying to, to get that to the concrete of, of what you're dealing with is, um, is really important. So, yes. Nick. <laughs> Thank you so much <laughs> for trying to, to help us navigate through all these um, these figures again. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.